The following interview contains some colorful language, very familiar to people working in marketing and sales, but probably not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Bob Hoffman, author of Ad Scam, How Online Advertising Gave Birth to One of History's Greatest Frauds and Became a Threat to Democracy. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Bob Hoffman to talk about his book, Ad Scam, how online advertising gave birth to one of history's greatest frauds and became a threat to democracy. Bob Hoffman is the author of five Amazon number one selling books about advertising. He is also one of the most sought-after international speakers on advertising and marketing. His books include Bad Men, How Advertising Went from a Minor Annoyance to a Major Menace, Marketers Are from Mars, Consumers Are from New Jersey, Advertising for Skeptics, and Laughing at Advertising, all of which have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. He is the creator of the popular Ad Contrarian blog, named one of the world's most influential marketing and advertising blogs by Business Insider. Bob was the CEO of two independent agencies and the U.S. operation of an international agency. Bob's commentary has appeared in the BBC World Service, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, MSNBC, the Financial Times, the Australian, New Zealand Public Broadcasting, Fox News, Sky News, Forbes, Canadian Public Broadcaster, and many other news outlets throughout the world, the most prominent being the Marketing Book Podcast. Okay, that's not really in his bio. I just put that in there. And interesting fact, in his youth... He responded to a want ad and was hired to be a writer of adult fiction. Oh, behave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Oh. He lasted one day at that job. Bob, congratulations on Ad Scam and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It's great to be back here again and uh, thanks for having me. Well, Congratulations, Bob, on your induction into the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club, which uh, entitles you to discount coupons at any Oakland, California area Taco Bell. That is amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's going to be, um, you know, you, you can go ahead. This will clearly be on your, your future bios. I think the listener should know that 
you and I are somewhat birds of a feather and that we both had long careers at advertising agencies and we're both, you know, fairly cynical. We both have very sensitive bullshit meters. <laughs> you mean you mean we both got kicked out of the agency business, right? That's <laughs> no, what you're trying to say. We escaped. We escaped. Okay. Yes, right, yes. Let's put it that way. That's okay. right. That's right. So we met in Nashville some years back at Michael Gass's uh, Fuel Lines Ad Agency New Business Conference, where you were the big keynote speaker. And, uh, and then he had the poor judgment to have me as the master of ceremonies, so I got to introduce you. And uh, it's all been pretty much downhill for you uh, since then. So <laughs> Yeah, you did a terrible introduction, <laughs> and since then my life's been a misery. Yeah. yeah, I hear that from a lot of people, Bob. Yeah, yeah. So you and I have broken bread together. We've had broken some, a lot of things together. Yeah, we've had some adult beverages together, and and now yeah. you can't get rid of me. So um, yeah. you know, I warned you, but uh, anyway, well, listen, you know, people may not fully appreciate who Bob Hoffman is. You know, the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> Let me just read a couple of these uh, things from the book that you know uh, noteworthy places have have mentioned you. Time. Magazine said you're fabulously irreverent. The Wall Street Journal describes you as caustic yet truthful. Financial Times says you give savage critiques of digital hype. And Jack Trout, co-author of a number of marketing books with Al Reese, including Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, he wrote, it's nice to find a real thinker in the ad business these days. And Byron Sharp, who you quote often in some of your other books, he's the author of How Brands Grow. He wrote, Bob is the little child who points out that the emperor is wearing no clothes. I'm jealous. I wish I'd been brave enough to be this rude. And uh, Mark Ritson, Marketing Week uh, columnist, he writes, Bob is one of our truly great marketing iconoclasts. And this last quote is... Um, because of Bob Hoffman's colorful language, I had to produce a listener advisory. That's from uh, Douglas Burdett, host of the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, your listeners aren't those that sensitive. They can take a nasty word. Oh, yeah. And as in the listener advisory that people will have heard at the beginning of this episode, it's nothing they haven't heard before. But I'm concerned that if they're listening to it with small children in the car... <laughs> I want them to turn it down because apparently there are some listeners that play this in the car with their kids. So, oh, bad mistake. Yeah. Don't do yeah. That. Well, their kids are going to end up like you and me, you know, working yeah. in advertising or marketing and, and, yeah. and we'll all be together in hell. So, anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, I want to read just from the beginning of this somewhat controversial book. And let me also yeah. say that. Uh, there, there is a fair amount of controversy here, or it's, it's, it's going to blow people's minds if they're not familiar with this. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you, you back everything up with a lot of research, so it's kind of hard to argue with you. But if there are authors of books that are contrary to this, they're welcome on the show, um, yeah. but they do need to write a book. So <laughs> I, I welcome all points of view here, but I want to read from the uh, introduction yeah. Uh, the first thing that happened in my 2017 book, Bad Men, was a reference to a then-unknown company called Cambridge Analytica. Within eight months, it became one of the most famous companies in the world. While men in the advertising and marketing industry knew full well the dangerous game of surveillance and exploitation that was being played by online advertisers, front-page headlines about Cambridge Analytica all across the globe brought the dangers of tracking-based media to the attention of hundreds of millions for the first time. Since the exposure of Cambridge Analytica, privacy abuse by the ad tech industry has become a cause celebre. 
among chattering politicians and regulators. Sadly, their posturing and bloviating has had little to no effect on the ability of huge ad tech platforms to follow us everywhere and intrude on all aspects of our public and private activities. It is now five years later, and the damage done by online advertising is substantially greater than it was then. Specifically, this book adds facts and commentary about three very troubling aspects of online advertising that are not often discussed in polite company. How online advertising has contributed to dangerous, destructive wedge that has developed in the political life of democratic nations. How online advertising has enabled the transfer of tens of billions of dollars from legitimate businesses to criminal enterprises through one of the largest frauds the world has ever known. And how the leaders of the advertising and marketing industry have turned a blind eye to the damage that tracking-based marketing tactics have done to the public. The mechanism that enables these outrages is the practice of spying on people across the web, relentlessly collecting private and personal information about people, sharing and selling that information to anyone who wants it. This has caused enormous, often unseen damage to individuals and to society. I have attempted to write a short, simple book that tells the story succinctly, without filler or flourishes. The book consists of some new pieces and some I have edited from previous published articles and essays. It is written mostly as a series of essays about a wide variety of topics touching on the technology known as ad tech. While each piece is just a slim slice, I hope that taken as a whole, these slices will suggest the broad scope of the problem we are facing. Democratic societies are experiencing unprecedented dangers as a result of deep divisions among the citizenry. Businesses are losing tens of billions of dollars annually to criminals. To varying degrees, these two problems have a common source, the practice of online tracking of individuals to collect and exploit personal, private information about us. This book tells a small part of that story. And then on the next page, you you write, I've tried to write this book in a fashion that will be useful to advertising professionals, but also comprehensible to civilians. I have been surprised by the large number of people in the advertising and marketing industry who know the language of ad tech, but don't really understand the workings of ad tech. So, Bob, yeah, what is ad tech? <laughs> ad tech is uh, the technology that is used primarily to follow us around the web and uh, collect information about us everywhere we go and everywhere we and uh, everywhere we read and everything we interact with, and that uh, information is used to inform marketers about uh, us in ways that we we are not familiar with and we we are not aware of and uh it has caused tremendous problems in the world and uh nothing's you know there's a lot of talk about cleaning it up but very little has been done mm-hmm. and the dangers that you that you talked about there are um are, are very serious and the advertising industry is not taking them seriously and uh, our our so-called leaders are not taking them seriously. And uh, I think it's time that um, we we do something about this, and that's what the book is about. One other definition, what is programmatic, okay. uh, automated online advertising? Yeah, programmatic advertising is advertising that um, is not bought 
by human beings. It's bought by by uh, software, computer software, automatically, and it it is the programmatic advertising is about somewhere between 70 and 90% of all online advertising is done programmatically. Historically, advertising was bought directly. So if you wanted to buy uh, uh, an ad in, in the New York Times, you would go to the New York Times ad rep and buy the ad from them. Mm-hmm. This is different. In, in programmatic advertising, you're not buying... In, you're not buying directly from a publication or from a website. What you're doing is buying a type of person. You're buying uh, Douglas Burdett. And what the, what the ad tech system does, what programmatic advertising does, is follow people around the web. And when they see someone like Douglas Burdett, it sends a signal and a, an auction is, is held in the, in nanoseconds and the auction says Douglas Burdett is now at bikinibabes.com mm-hmm. who wants to show him uh, an ad and how much are you willing to pay and that auction is held like I said in in nanoseconds and the ad appears at bikinibeachbabes.com so the advertiser does not know where his advertising is going to run. Unlike, unlike when you buy an ad from the New York Times, say, you will know that your ad will appear in the New York Times on Sunday and you can see it there. In, in this case, you don't, you don't know where your ads are running because you're not buying directly from a website and they can run anywhere on the web. This has created all kinds of problems, including what we call brand safety problems, where um, reputable brands' advertising runs on, ir- on disreputable websites. Um, that's just one of the problems. Yeah, you mentioned that in a study of some of the UK's largest advertisers, including Disney, Shell, Lloyd's, Pepsi, and Unilever, the ISBA, the Incorporated Society of British Advertisers, found that ads bought programmatically for the average advertiser wound up on over 40,000 different websites, over 80% of which were not premium. And then you go on to write, not premium is a nice British way of saying crap. Yeah. A lot of websites are pure, you know, there are 1.2 billion websites in the world. And uh, a great many of them are either total crap scam websites or they are not really websites at all. They are bots. They are, um, they are software strings that look to the programmatic advertising system like they are real websites and the programmatic advertising system believes they are real websites and sends ads to them and the ads are seen by no one because there are no people there because there's no website there. Nonetheless, the advertiser is charged for having had an ad run on that website. And uh, the, the number of scam or crappy websites on the web is mind-blowing. Uh, according to um, a, uh, a research firm, the, uh, the number of malignant bots on the web exceeds the number of human beings on yes. the web. Yes. The, the amount of 
activity being conducted by malignant uh, by malignant bots is greater than the amount of activity done by human beings on the web. That just gives you some idea of how corrupt and how out of control online advertising is. Yes, and that quote was from Barracuda Networks. Barracuda Networks, that's right. Yeah. The problem is you cite everything, which I, I, yeah, I, I keep trying I, to catch you, and damn it, you, you... Wouldn't it be easier if I just made <laughs> shit up? Yeah. Come on, man. It's what you used to do for a living. We have enough of that in government. We don't need that from, <laughs> right. from us. Okay. Well, let's unpack that just a little bit more. Sure. I want to jump ahead. You, you, you talk about how this uh, fraud falls into one of three buckets. Fraudulent audiences, fraudulent websites, and fraudulent clicks. And I'm, I want to ask about that because I just talked about the 40,000 sites that these ads were running on, 80% of which were never seen. Yeah. There, there are far more than three different kinds of ad fraud. There are dozens of different kinds of ad fraud. But they, the, the three most easily understood are are based on on bots and they are bots that create fraudulent websites which i just talked about then there are bots that create now that's a website you can't even see it doesn't exist of course you right. can't see it yeah. it doesn't exist all it is is software you could sit you know if you're doing fraud it's fooling making, the system right if if you're doing uh, if you're making a fraudulent uh, louis vuitton handbag you actually have to make a handbag and make it look like a if you're doing uh, fraudulent website you don't even have to build a website you could just sit at at a at a computer a terminal at a keyboard and create software that looks to the system like it's a website so there's that there's that kind of fraud then there's fraudulent audiences which are bots that are made to look like human beings and they're not so um the so a certain website will tell you well we have uh, uh, a million hits per month on our website well they may but 900,000 of those hits may not be human beings they may be uh, bots mm-hmm. uh, that are being sent to that website by fraudulent publishers who want to get paid more than they are entitled to get paid then there are fraudulent clicks. There are fraudsters program computers to click all day, every day, to infect other computers and have them be clicking all day, every day. And in some cases, they even hire human beings to sit at a terminal and go around and click on websites all day, every day. So, the, so the, the those are the three easiest to understand kinds of frauds. But then there are other kinds of frauds uh, that I that I mentioned. There's what are called domain spoofing. There's cookie stuffing. There's click injection. There's pixel stuffing. There's ad stacking. There's ad injections. There's click hijacking. Those are just some of the ones I mentioned. But there are literally dozens of different kinds of ad fraud going on all the time. And the result of that is that tens of billions, and nobody knows for sure, but probably over $60 billion a year 
in ad fraud going on. And to give you some perspective, if it is true that $60 billion is being lost to ad fraud, then ad fraud is a bigger business than Coca-Cola or Nike or Netflix. That's how big it is. Yeah, you you write that the World Federation of Advertisers says that by 2025, advertising fraud may be the second largest source of criminal income on the planet after drug trafficking. And already online ad fraud has overtaken credit card fraud, despite the fact that the credit card business is 10 times the size of online advertising. So, Bob, you really got me thinking here. If I ever took yeah. up a life of crime... I'll tell you, this is the one to do. Th yeah. Thanks to your book, it would be advertising <laughs> fraud. Yeah. And there's a, there's a great chart in the book I'm looking at. Actually, I don't have the book. I have the book printed out in a binder in case people hear me turning pages. Because this, this book's going to be hot off the presses when you hear this, folks. But it's a, a, one of those grids of four boxes that yep. you are required by law to put in every business book. <laughs> For all quadrants. the yeah, yeah quadrants, quadrants, quadrants yeah. for all the MBAs. Okay, <laughs> it's required by law. As soon as I get a book to consider for this show, I, I all I do is check to see if there's a, a, a quadrant. Yeah. But it, it the the two axes are you know from low to high. You know the the x axis or the y axis is uh, potential payout. Okay, right. and the other one is effort and risk. And it's so like organized. I'll just pick out a couple. Organized crime is a high payout potential. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's very difficult and very risky, <laughs> so yeah. I'm told. <laughs> and then, like down in the lower left hand quadrant, see one of them is identity theft. So that's a low potential payout, and it's rather difficult. And then um, something that's less effortful and risky is credit card fraud, but it doesn't pay out as well. But in the upper right hand quadrant, all by itself is ad fraud, high payout potential, yeah. low effort. And low risk. So yep. this will be the last episode of the Marketing Book Podcast because I've <laughs> I, I got some programmers here. We're gonna we're gonna get going yeah. here. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why. Marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called all-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Yeah, in, in the book, I, I give an example of a uh, a reporter for, uh, I think she was for NBC or MSNBC, and she decided to find out how difficult it is to be an ad fraudster. And she had no technical knowledge at all. And in within a week, she was collecting fraudulent ad money um, just by following a few easy steps. Uh, the, Do you the, have her contact uh, info by yeah. any chance? 
<laughs> She's now my wife. Oh, okay. No, uh, uh, no, well played, the, good sir. The um, the uh, barrier to entry into ad fraud is ridiculously low, and there are essentially no penalties for it. There's no n- nobody's doing anything about it. There's no one being uh, prosecuted for it. And a lot of the reason for that is that it's transnational. A lot of the fraud that uh, is happening may not be happening in the country in which the fraud is being is is being effectuated. So that you know, if you if if someone in Russia is doing ad fraud uh, here in the U.S., who's going to prosecute them? Do you think Vladimir Putin's worried that uh, Coca Cola here in the U.S. is being the victim of ad fraud? I don't think so. So uh, there's no there's no um, no nobody is has their eye on this ball, and nobody is uh, keeping the legal aspects of it under control. Well, other than Bob Hoffman, perhaps. Other than me, that's and, right. And some uh, of the organizations you quote, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Ad fraud is a type of crime in which thieves use computer technology to steal money from businesses. The businesses think they are buying advertising, but they are actually buying nothing. Wow. You mentioned Russia there. Yeah. And let's jump around here, because do you think that state-sponsored ad tech fraud is is afoot? Yes, I do. Look, let's look at it this way. We know that in 2020 that um, foreign governments got inside of the the U.S.'s some of the most, what we thought of as secure uh, systems in, in, in the U.S., including the National Security Agency they hacked, they hacked the Military Cyber Command, they hacked the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they, they, in fact, they hacked... 250 U.S. government agencies. Now, do we think that those um, that the Russians who did that can hack all those super tight systems, but not hack the online programmatic ad system? You'd have to be crazy to believe that. Mm-hmm. And here we have tens of billions of dollars just hanging out there for them and there is no penalty if they're caught it's not even clear that it's illegal so um you have to ask you know i can i prove that they have hacked the uh, the uh the programmatic ad system the ad tech system no i can't prove it but you'd have to be crazy to think that governments that are our enemies the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans. If this, if all this money is hanging out there, low-hanging fruit for them, why wouldn't they take it? I mean... It, they already do other things that are actually yeah. uh, greater risk, uh, more effort. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so... You, to me, you'd have to be a fool to believe that there are not some state-sponsored actors stealing from us. Now, that doesn't mean that there also aren't just bad guys in general. I, I'm sure the drug industry is getting a lot of its uh, financial backing f- 
I'm sure there are all kinds of bad guys getting financial backing from money they're stealing from the advertising industry. Mm -hmm. And many of those bad guys do listen to the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope not, because I'm going to have to move if they are. (laughs) I'm going to have to go into the um, marketing book, uh, what do you call it? The uh, Witness Protection Program. (laughs) You you have one of those, don't you? Yes, yes. But then you wouldn't be able to go see your beloved uh, San Francisco Giants and Oakland A's <laughs> play. Yeah. So you write the online ad industry is not just toxic, not just a toxic business factor. It is a toxic national security factor. Can you talk briefly about uh, the extent of Google's illegal activities in supporting the Russian disinformation from the? I think it was an analytics report in uh, yeah twenty twenty two. Yeah. Um, Google has, as you know, Google is the largest distributor of advertising throughout the world. Um, What was found that in in the wake of of the Russian attack on the Ukraine uh, back in February, um, the U.S. intelligence, the Senate Intelligence Committee sent uh, information to, to... Chairman of Google, telling him that uh, that Russian uh, online website platforms were using the Google system to exploit money, to exploit the system mm-hmm. and uh, get money out of advertisers who Google was placing on on Russian. Uh, websites that were related to the um, Russian government. And these included famous brands, Citibank, PayPal, Subaru, Charles Schwab, and a whole bunch of other um, websites that had been sanctioned by the Treasury Department. And yet Google kept feeding ads to these websites, and they kept earning money from advertisers. And Google hides uh, at least half the time. It's impossible to know for a um, for a a uh, website where where the money the the inventory that that Google's seller IDs have. Are, are marked as confidential. So you can't tell who is doing what. Right. They you mentioned that 87% of Google's ad inventory seller IDs in Russia are marked as confidential. Right. So, so if we want to find out who's advertising on, on Russian websites that are, that are connected to the Russian government, we can't because they're marked as confidential. So, in other words, uh, marketers do not know where their advertising is appearing, who they are paying, or what they are getting. And very often, this is the methodology by which advertising appears on websites that uh, have been sanctioned by our Treasury Department and are illegal for U.S. companies to advertise on. Mm. You have a picture in the book of a tweet from Sundar Pichai. I may not be pronouncing his name correctly, but he's the CEO of Google's parent company, Alphabet, stating, quote, 
privacy is at the heart of everything we do. So <laughs> you have some choice words for him yeah. Yeah. explaining that I, nothing could be further from the truth. You then go into a very clear explanation of what a third-party cookie is and what it is that Google does with them, which I think might help people understand how out of control it is. Okay. Let's let's talk about that for a second. Let's say you are uh, you're just Douglas Burdett, and you want to find out from in- some information about American history, and you go to the Smithsonian's website, right? You want to do some research. Yeah. And what could be more innocent than the Smithsonian Institution, mm-hmm. right? So you go there, and you go to the website. And unbeknownst to you, when you get to that website, the Smithsonian is placing 2,200 trackers on you. They are just by uh, going to one page on their site, pixels on you. Okay. So that now, when you anywhere you go, because you happen to have visited the Smithsonian website, there are 2,200 entities that you've never heard of who are following you everywhere you go. You you don't know who these people are. You don't know why they're following you. And you don't know what they're collecting about what you do. But you can be pretty sure they're collecting everything they can about you. Where you go, who you talk to, what you look at, what you read. And um, this is called a third-party cookie. A third-party cookie is is when you go to a website, that website or that, in this case, when we're talking about Chrome, that browser allows third parties, people that you don't know, to put a cookie on on you and follow you around. That's how, back to what we talked about at the very beginning, about how they're able to track me down and uh, show me an ad when I'm on that bikini website that I'm now feverishly trying to find. (laughs) And then they say they're all about, they're all about privacy. I know like I, yeah, all about privacy. That is the big, you know, sometimes you just got to laugh at how full of shit these people are. The, the idea that Sundar Pichai could write privacy is at the heart of everything we do when they have, they are the biggest abusers of privacy the world has ever seen. You mentioned history a minute ago. I yeah. wanted to mention, uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day about Napoleon Bonaparte, yeah. not dynamite. And <laughs> Empress Josephine, his uh, first wife, was yeah. born in St. Lucia in the Caribbean and grew mm-hmm. up on a sugar plantation. So she was born like 1763, I think. Mm-hmm. And in this podcast, they talked about her teeth were black, which is yep. why all the portraits showed her with her mouth closed. Take us back to when you were younger uh, and sugar was first coming on the scene, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> what do ad tech and sugar have in common? Uh, ad tech and sugar have something important in common, and that is for many decades, the advertising industry was criticized for not having any mathematical basis for proving that what we did worked. And we were always fighting from behind, and we, we were always apologizing for not having good data. Right. And, and Bob, let me just interject. By marketing law, 
we are required to mention John Wanamaker, who said, <laughs> yeah. yeah, only half my advertising does any good. The problem is I don't know which half. Yeah, right. Okay, check that box. So, so we never had very much good uh, intelligence and data about the effect of advertising. And we were apologizing for this forever. Along comes the 21st century, and here comes marketing technology. And this solved a, a huge problem for us because suddenly we had mathematics. The, re the reason that this is interesting uh, in, and relatable to sugar, it's the same kind of thing that happened in the British Empire, where in, you know, a few hundred years ago, food didn't taste so good. And that's why spices from the, from the East were so valuable, mm -hmm. because uh, they were such treasured commodities, because it made food, food taste better. So in the 17th century, sugar from uh, the East, from New Guinea and India, became available in England. And it became hugely popular because it made tea taste better. And the Brits couldn't get enough of it. Uh, in 1700, the average Brit consumed four pounds of sugar. By 1900, the average Brit consumed 90 pounds of sugar. And, you know, until the experience kicks in, you don't know what the side effects are going to be. You don't know what the, um, what, what's going to happen as a result when something magically satisfies a need or a craving. So here, now, what happened was they ate all this sugar, their, their teeth turned black, and uh, their teeth rotted and fell out because of the unintended effects of this satisfaction of the craving for sugar. Well, I think we're doing the same thing here in the industry. We have a craving for math. We have a craving for metrics. And we don't really uh, have a sense of what's important in the math and what's what what math is important, what math is baloney. And, and, but the gratification of having these metrics, you know, the KPIs and the, you know, that, regardless of its relevance, regardless of its reliability, regardless of its authenticity, regardless of its side effects, we're consuming as much technology as we can, regardless of its side effects. And we're hungry for the gratification that numbers provide and we're gorging on technology and we're finding that it's rotting our teeth <laughs> um, and and it, not only is it rotting our teeth but the, the metrics that we have produced are among the least reliable metrics we've ever had in the ad industry nobody can agree on anything um, so that that's where the the compulsion for sugar and the compulsion for technology intersect it's such an interesting concept. I really, uh, not that I needed to get whipped any more into a frenzy, but when you started the book off with that story, I, I, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I want to talk, talk, speaking of uh, rotting yeah. teeth and teeth yeah. falling out, let's talk a little bit more about side effects. You've got a section yeah. here, side effects, the important effects, and you write about how uh, after more than 10 years of writing about the scourge of tracking and online surveillance, it finally occurred to me why most people, regulators and legislators, don't seem to get it or care much about it. I was at a dinner 
with a famous economist and a former professor of marketing at one of our most prestigious universities. Over the course of dinner, the topic of conversation turned to online advertising. I explained how I felt about tracking-based online advertising. One of these brilliant people replied, essentially, I don't see what all the fuss is about. Sure, online advertising sometimes feels creepy, but so what? All advertising is creepy. What what light bulb went off in your head at that point? The light bulb that went off in my head was that the worst effects of tracking and of ad tech are not that it's made advertising worse, although it has. But that, but those aren't the worst effects. The worst effects are the side effects. The fact that it has been driving a wedge through the collection of data and the creation of algorithms. It has been driving a wedge into society and that it is costing us tens of billions of dollars every year. So those side effects are much more important than the effects on the advertising itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're right that like so many advertising and marketing people, I make the mistake of forgetting that advertising is of little consequence to most people. Yeah. But let's go to the very next page. Uh, You write that in 2010... (laughs) <laughs> 12 years ago, you wrote your first piece about the ad industry's assault on privacy. It appeared in Adweek magazine and was called Big Brother Has Arrived and He's Us. Since then, I've written and spoken almost weekly about the dangers to individuals and to society from tracking and ad tech. Most of the time, my musings were shrugged off with a simple, I don't worry about tracking. I have nothing to hide. You, you've heard this a lot. What, but yeah. What's your response to that when to people my- say, I have nothing to hide? Yeah, my response to that is that we all have something to hide. We just don't know what it is. Uh, For example, the recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade has brought to light the very real jeopardy that ad tech and tracking creates for individuals, and in this case, particularly women. The web of data that's collected by Google, by Facebook, by other trackers, are informing police about who to prosecute on on questions of abortion rights. Mm -hmm. And they are using this information to find women who, who may be Going to Google and just checking up on what the uh, what the abortion rights are in their state, what the, what the reality is, and but the but the police are using this as evidence and can use this as evidence of criminal activity. Right, they in could fact, be looking for uh, information on where to buy certain pills. Right, they. It, it, In June, Facebook handed over to police private messages between a pregnant 17-year-old girl and her mother concerning their effort to find out how you get abortion pills. This teen is now being prosecuted in the state of Nebraska for felonies. And um, it's all based on the information that Facebook collected on her, unbeknownst to her. And, um, 
you know, according to the Washington Post, Google received nearly 150,000 requests for user data that they collected on people like us. They, they, were, they responded to 150,000 requests from law enforcement and they, in the, in the first half of 2021, and they handed over information on users in 78% of those cases. So in other words, this is, this is a way for police to be spying on the public without, without having to get search warrants, without the protections of the Fourth Amendment that we're used to. And uh, I think it is very dangerous, whatever your political beliefs. I don't care if you're a woke or a MAGA. I don't care what you are. This is dangerous. We should not be allowed. If the government were collecting this, we'd be up in arms. But the marketing industry is collecting it and providing it to the government. And too dangerous for a democratic society, in my opinion. Yes, and you've got these uh, results from this one Pew Research study yeah. that showed that consumers are very, very concerned about this. Yes, people do not want to be tracked. About 80% of people in the U.S. say they are concerned about the way their data is being used. About 80%, they are not confident that companies will admit mistakes and take responsibility if they misuse or compromise personal information. So th there is a great deal of concern about the public, about how the data that is being collected is being used, but there's very little being done by governments. The, the, there are certain regulations that have been passed, but they are not being enforced. And uh, if there's no enforcement, the regulations are moot. It's all baloney. Yeah. Well, let's uh, go from the frying pan into the fire and talk about yeah. something that I don't normally talk about on the Marketing Group podcast, but politics. Politics. <laughs> yes. But again, regardless of where you are, you write, I would love to stop writing about politics and get yes. back to writing about advertising. Unfortunately, there is now a toxic connection between the two that cannot be ignored. And you go on that page to write, we may be in the first stages of what could turn out to be a death spiral for our form of government. Explain what's behind that. Yeah. What's behind it is, once again, tracking. Mm -hmm. um, what happens is, as we, as we move about the web, trackers collect data about us, okay? And the data that is collected about us is fed by platforms into algorithms. An algorithm, an algorithm is, a, is a formula. It's data about us that, that kind of defines, describes who we are and kind of describes our personalities in a way. Mm -hmm. The algorithms, let's use Facebook as an example. Facebook has an algorithm for me and it has an algorithm for you. And what you see on Facebook, your Facebook page is completely different from my Facebook page. And it's based on the algorithms that define what we believe and who we are. And so Facebook wants to keep us on their platform as long as possible. So their algorithm is so their algorithm for me is produced to keep me there as long as possible, and they do that by feeding me ever more um, engaging stuff. And by engaging, you know, it it is often it often means um, 
what it it, it it lurid lurid notions of my own predispositions so and, and these lurid no, no more lurid notions keep me there longer and they and they and they and they pull me in and they drive me into rabbit holes and rabbit holes are where i may encounter people whose ideas are more extreme versions of my own and uh, the Wall Street Journal did a, uh, a report in May of 2020 in which they reported on a, on a study that Facebook executives undertook. And they wanted to understand how these practices and how these rabbit holes that, we were, that were sent under shape the behavior of users. And the study concluded that the algorithms that Facebook used to gain user attention and increase their time on Facebook were driving a wedge into U.S. society. According to the report, 64% of all the extremist group joins, in other words, of all the people who joined an extremist group on Facebook, were sent there by the recommendations of Facebook tools that the recommendations that the groups that Facebook recommended they join were the reason that about two-thirds of all people joined extremist groups. So the al so it, there, there, there's a straight line from the collection of data to the creation of algorithms to sending people into ra down rabbit holes and into radicalizations and extremism. So, and this report by Facebook executives it revealed the truth it showed that facebook is not just and and it's not just facebook it's other platforms as well it's not just a uh, a, a bulletin board where you where you uh, can post your opinions it's also a way in which people are sent and driven to dangerous groups. And there, there's a guy named Professor um, Haney Fareed. He's at the University of California in Berkeley. And he said, quote, they didn't set out to fuel misinformation and hate and divisiveness, but that's what the algorithms learned. And the algorithms learn it from the data that is collected about us and fed into the algorithms. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the book that we used to be able to dismiss Zuckerberg and his wolf pack as greedy, silly brats with no perspective and no ethical compass. But he's far more dangerous than that. Yep. And I think that explains why. But let's let's you uh, don't hold back on Facebook. No. You <laughs> very clear. And you've got a section on why nobody trust Facebook. And just a reminder, Facebook is fighting to the bitter end to block independent monitoring and auditing of their numbers. Yeah. Remind folks about some of the whoppers that, that Facebook has told. Nothing that Facebook ever says should be taken at face value. Everything they say turns out to be not quite true. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 2017, Facebook claimed that it reached 41 million Americans between the ages of 18 to 24. The only problem is there are only 31 million Americans between 18 and 24. If they reached every American of that age, they'd still be 10 million short. Mm -hmm. Well, was it 
people or maybe there were some American uh, pets. Yeah, maybe there was American cheese or something. <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe it was uh, – anyway. There's, oh, just one whopper are, after another in here. Yeah, and, and, and they're uh, – and, and it's not just here in America. That oh, I know. You got world. France, Canada, Brazil, yeah. Australia. Right. Yeah. In, 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 uh, I had no idea those, those, uh, those populations got so much bigger all of a sudden. Yeah. In, uh, one, one more example. In, uh, in the UK, Facebook claimed they reached 12.3 million people between 20 and 29. The only problem is there are only 8.8 of them alive. So this kind of and you know I you you could just write a book about the baloney that Facebook publishes, and and you you have to think if they brazenly release these numbers to the public, these dishonest numbers to the public, what must they be feeding their credulous clients in private? What kind of bullshit must they be telling them? I would bet you. That if I, I don't know how many people Facebook says it reaches monthly anymore, but I would bet you if you got in there and do did forensics about it, there would you. I'll bet you they're overstating it by at least thirty percent. I mm-hmm. you know I don't know I can't uh, I don't I have no knowledge, but I'll but I would bet large sums of money that all the people they say they're reaching there's all kinds of duplication, there's all kinds of fraud, there's all kinds of uh, baloney. You know, in the first three months of this year, in the first three months of 2022, they had to remove 1.6 billion fake accounts from their platform. 1.6 billion in the first quarter of this year. That's uh, an annual rate of 6.4 billion fake accounts that they have. And uh, we, we know that they're famous for not being able to count very well. I can only imagine how many accounts they haven't found that are fake that are still on their platform. There's just a couple other things I want to ask you about. I mean, just mm-hmm. there's a lot of fish falling off the boat here, but there are still a few whoppers that we <laughs> we need to we need yeah. to talk about. One is you write about thanks to an accident, we now have alarming and incontrovertible evidence oh, yeah. that we cannot trust the ad tech ecosystem, and most vividly, we cannot trust the reports and information we get from the people we pay to protect us from that same system's uncertainty, uncertainties. Tell us about this accidental discovery in yeah. 2022 that it related yeah. to uh, Gannett and what it revealed. Yeah. So in 2022, uh, there were two researchers who worked for a company called Analytics. And they were doing some analytics on stuff, and they found they accidentally stumbled on something. They found that Gannett Publishing, which publishes USA Today, had unintentionally made a serious mistake over nine months. They had sent billions of ads that were supposed to go to USA Today to other publications that they owned that were much, much smaller. Like a lot of local newspapers. A lot of local uh, websites, yeah, news websites. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about billions of ads here going to the wrong places. These were ads for major 
uh, advertisers, Sears and Nike and Adidas and Ford and Starbucks and like that. So these billions of ads over a nine-month period ran in the wrong places without A, a single brand noticing that their ads weren't where they were supposed to be, B, a single agency knowing what they were supposed to be, uh, what they were buying, and C, a single fraud detection company or media auditing firm unearthing the fact that billions of ads went to the wrong places. Now, how can it be that these companies were so incredibly incompetent that billions of ads went to the wrong places and nobody knew it. Right. According to the Wall Street Journal, at least 15 different ad tech companies were part of this chain of buying. Yes. Yes. And nobody knew it and nobody reported it. And all it, and all it, it was, it was accidental research that showed us how alarmingly incompetent the ad tech ecosystem is. That billions of ads went to the wrong places through the ad tech ecosystem and nobody saw it. And you, you, you have to assume that all these sophisticated companies, all these, you know, Adidas and Nikes and all the companies who were advertising on, on, thought they were advertising on USA Today were getting reports telling them that everything was running just as it was supposed to be running. And now we know that even, not only can't you trust the buys going where you want them to go, you can't trust the reports you get about where they went and what they did. Mm. Well, we're both uh, agency guys, uh, recovering agency guys. Yes. Remind folks of why the agency world has zero to negative incentive to let clients know about this. It's really very simple. There are two reasons. Number one, it's not in their financial best interest. The, the, the agencies get paid, for the most part, they get paid on how much advertising they place. And they get either a commission on it or they get some kind of uh, fee for it. Uh, but they don't get paid based on how, um, how accurate their buys are. They don't get paid on that. They get paid on the quantity, mm-hmm. not the quality of what they're buying. The second reason is that it's almost impossible for agencies to know what's happening with the advertising they're sending places. <laughs> Google Remember, doesn't even know. <laughs> nobody knows. Remember, the, the report that you referred to earlier, where the average quality advertiser, is his programmatic ads are running about on about 40,000 different websites. How in the world... Is a is a media analyst supposed to do forensics on forty thousand different websites? It would take them forever. It's just impossible to do, and so they have to rely on the reports they get from the uh, SSPs and the DSPs and and everyone along the channel, everyone along the um, the, the the reporting uh, line. 
it, it, it is relying on someone else. And nobody really knows what's happening. And that goes for the agencies. They, they can't possibly do forensic analysis on 40,000 websites every time they make a buy. Mm-hmm. It's just impossible to do. And so they have to rely on unreliable reports. That's the, that's the essence of it. Yeah. Let me jump to another yeah. section here that just, you know, again – uh, irritated me and 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 made me angry. And actually, you know, it's funny. You talk about Facebook. I actually deactivated my account earlier Good this year, Good. <laughs> in no small part because of books uh, I've read by Bob Hoffman. Um, but also, there was another book that you may have read um, called "The Hype Machine" by Sinan Aral. I didn't read it. No. It's it's oh. It's yeah. right up your alley. You might know okay. about all of it, but he it. he's at MIT and he wrote this uh-huh. book and he he talked in the book about how when Russia rolled into Crimea in 2014, right. how they used all these bots to manipulate the news coverage. Yep, that was one of the darkest <laughs> books, yep. <laughs> topics I've read yep. uh, for this show. I'll include a link to that interview on your Good. episode's website page. Yep. But let's talk about how ad tech is hiding behind the skirts of small business. You write that a while back you wrote a piece for the European magazine Euractive. Yes. And you wrote, quote, to justify this scandalous intrusion on personal privacy, Facebook, Google, and the rest of the ad tech industrial giants are now claiming they are doing it for the benefit of small business, period. This is nonsense. In quote, to yeah. explain how they're, what they're doing there. Well, in in Europe, where this is here, it's not even an issue. I mean, our 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 government is so blind; they don't they're not even dealing with this. But over in Europe, they're trying to deal with these problems, and Google and and uh, Facebook and Amazon they have a very brilliant strategy. It's it's. Um, it's disgusting, but it's brilliant, and they are saying that all this, all this tracking they're doing is necessary for small and medium-sized businesses, and that if they were, if they were to take it away, or the, the tracking, that uh, it would be so harmful to small and medium-sized businesses. And you know, it's mainly baloney. Um, small and medium-sized businesses could still advertise on Facebook or on Google, or any place they want, if the advertising was based on things other than tracking. You know, the ad industry has been brilliant for decades at finding targets for products without having to spy on people. Yeah, like television they, advertising. Exactly. Yeah. This, is, this is all bullshit that they need to spy on people for the good of small and medium-sized business. And, you know, one of the... One of the the uh, cases that I I cite in my in my book is that there is a uh, the CNBC uh, reported on on Google and Amazon that they have a deceitful scheme to use small business owners to pimp for them. Mm-hmm. The report said that uh, uh, Google and Amazon created something called the Connected Commerce Council which pitches itself as a grassroots movement representing small business owners uh, and, and that this connected co- commerce council, uh, you know, is, is uh, you know, in, in Google and Amazon's corner, we need to, we need to continue, uh, you know, uh, 
attracting people for, for business. Well, it turns out that this is bullshit, that the Consumer Council, the Consumer Connected Council is funded by Google and Amazon, and that um, the, that CNBC uh, contacted four of the people from who were listed on the consume on the um, connected commerce council's website they interviewed a blacksmith a hair salon owner a barber shop owner and a towing ser- service owner uh, all of them were listed as members of the connected commerce council and every one of them said they never heard of the connected commerce council but the use of these people by the big tech firms is is having its effect. And, in, in, you know, in Europe, I gave a talk to some people last year, and uh, the, the, whole, the whole basis of the defense of tracking by the ad tech industry was based on, on the, the need that small and medium-sized businesses have to utilize tracking to keep their businesses healthy. Mm-hmm. It's all baloney, and uh, it needs to be ended. It reminded me of like when a politician would say it's all about the children. Yeah. Uh, and they're exploiting them. Or they'll uh, they'll say uh, maybe the defense industry or somebody would say, well, it's all about the troops. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> some other – and small business fits, fits right in there. So Yep. Yeah, no, who doesn't love small business? Yeah. Everyone loves small business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea that Google and Amazon and Facebook are the friends of small business is so absurd, and yet they get away with this bullshit. Yeah. Well, let's jump to uh, just a couple other quick things. Uh, Apple versus Facebook. Yeah. You write for a few years now, Apple and Facebook have been at each other's throats, which I enjoy reading about. Yes. <laughs> and you say the war got really nasty in 2021 when changes to Apple's privacy policies on its mobile operating system cost Facebook $10 billion in ad revenue. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Well, they they didn't allow um, Facebook to use certain tracking mechanisms that were uh, previously available to them through the Apple mobile operating system. And this cost Facebook $10 billion. And uh, which, you know, $10 billion can... can, um, A billion here, a billion there? (laughs) Yeah, it starts to add up. Yeah, Yeah, it it can feed Zuckerberg's metaverse uh, addiction for a year. Um, So uh, that, that, that that hurt... Facebook and made them even more angry at Apple, and um, and then they lit out at Apple, saying that uh, Apple, you know, the, Apple was under pressure from the antitrust uh, people in Washington because they charged a thirty percent vigorish to app app developers who sell their products <laughs> on Apple's App Store, and so Zuckerberg had a chime in and say, when we introduce a revenue share, it will be less than the 30% that Apple and others take. Yeah, bullshit. Um, Facebook announced its revenue share price for stuff on its metaverse uh, platform, and they are going to take a 47.5% share. 
Yeah. And, oh. and uh, you know, as I say in the book, I'm starting to think you can't trust this Zuckerberg guy. <laughs> right. Let me just quote from this. <laughs> Privacy is the issue the two companies battle over in public. Facebook makes almost 99% of its revenue from advertising, which – Privacy abuse is its unique selling proposition. <laughs> Apple makes most of its money from hardware and software in which privacy abuse is helpful but not essential. <laughs> Consequently, Apple positions itself as privacy-friendly while Facebook pretends that it's the friend of small business and that privacy abuse is a necessary part of defending small business. While some of Apple's posturing regarding privacy is bullshit, nobody comes close to out-bullshitting Facebook. At Facebook, bullshit isn't just a tactic. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> is that a slogan you wrote for them, Bob? I did, yes. Yeah. I'm Man, hoping they'll use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the last things I wanted to ask you about yeah. is you write today in the marketing industry, we have foolishly equated technology with wisdom. Yeah. And it's a, you also write, in the world of marketing, the conflict between technology and wisdom has been no contest. The result is that the marketing industry is drowning in technology and starving for wisdom. Explain. Well, we've had a lot of, um, we've had a lot of technological miracles come our way. And, uh, but they have brought with them a whole lot of problems that are eating away at our at our society just like sugar does to teeth just like sugar does to teeth and it has produced some very disturbing and dangerous manifestations that we need to be more aware of and more conscious conscious of and we need to have legislation and regulation that catches up with technology because technology is way out of control. And um, sadly, our regulators and legislators don't even know what they're trying to regulate in many cases and don't even know what should or could be done. I, you know, I end that section with saying technology without wisdom is just an elevator without buttons. You know, again, back to military history, this reminds me of like World War I, where the technology had gotten way ahead of the tactics. Yeah. And there was unimaginable slaughter. Yeah. And the same thing happened like in the American Civil War, where suddenly they had been fighting like Napoleonic style wars. Right. And uh, the rifle was introduced, which yep. they, they didn't know how to, how to deal with that. So, yep. all right, Bob, let me – last question I want to ask about yes. your book is um, – let me just quote from this. So you're probably thinking, okay, smartass, so what are we supposed to do? Yep. Just give me two words. My, my quick analysis. Okay, there are some things that, that the online ad tech industry should be allowed to do. I think they should be allowed to collect shallow first-person data about me. So when I go to their website, they should be able to know what my email address is, maybe what my name is, what my if zip code is. If you provide it. Yes. Now, even if I don't provide it, even if I don't provide it, they, they are entitled to something for me visiting their site. And if it's shallow first-person data 
I don't mind that. Now, maybe there be some people who do mind that. I wouldn't. Second, if I buy from the site and I clearly consent, they should be allowed to store my credit card information because I don't want to have to enter my credit card information every time I go to buy something somewhere. And third, they should be allowed to serve me ads. In return for the service or information or entertainment they're providing, they should have the right to earn some money for ad- from advertisers by showing me ads. Uh, that is essentially the exchange of value proposition that has underwritten the media industry for decades. That's what television was built on in radio and, and newspapers, and it seems to have been proven to be reasonably fair to all parties. Now, here's what they should not be allowed to do. Mm-hmm. They should not be allowed to follow me once I leave, leave their website. They should not be allowed to sell, trade, or give any data that I've granted them to any third party, including any other division of their parent company, for any reason. And third, they should not be permitted to allow any third party to use any of their assets to collect or utilize any information about me. So what I'm saying is my interaction with a web entity should be seen as a, as a client relationship. Uh, they, they should be entitled to develop a client list. You know, I'm using their website. I think it's okay for them to know that but they should not be able to share that. They should not be able to sell that. They should not be able to utilize that in any way that I don't know about. And you say there is one simple place to start. We need to simply ban tracking. It's very simple. Two words, ban tracking. That's what we need to do. If we ban tracking so much of what we've discussed here today would go away. Not all of it. There will always be issues. But this is where we need to start to have a reasonable and civilized online world. We need to ban tracking. Well, Bob, if readers took only one thing away from the book, if not that, what would you hope it would be? that they are in danger, that democratic institutions are in danger. And as silly as it may seem, part of the danger is what the online advertising industry is doing. And they need to be cognizant of it. And when given a chance, they should express their dissatisfaction with what's going on to regulators, to representatives, and to other influential people. Yeah, in the book, uh, several places you talk about how the marketing and advertising industry is really at the forefront of sadly, all these other things. Yeah, sadly, uh, like our the division. industry. Yeah, sadly, our industry. Not only, not only are we not fighting against this, our industry leaders are active proponents of tracking. They are actively going against any reasonable attempts to stop this spying and surveillance 
they are opposing. And it's terrible that our leaders are doing this and that we're not saying to them, stop it. You don't speak for us. You are. You, you should not be advocating these things. Yeah, that's right. That Pew study that you reference in the book, yeah. big difference between what the online ad tech world says. So these are the benefits of tracking. And yeah. The next page you outline yeah. uh, the people do no. not do not agree yeah. with that. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, is there one thing a listener could do today to put in action? Just one of the ideas we've we've talked about. I mean, anytime you you write write to people, write to kind. Write to regulators, write to congressmen, tell them that the, what's happening is unconscionable and dangerous. Uh, you know, we really, well, you know what we need to do, Douglas, really? We need to start an organization within the advertising and marketing world to fight against this. Because uh, we, we, if we can get enough people inside inside the beltway here of advertising and marketing to to fight against this. That would be wonderful. And I'm, I'm appointing you as the head fighter for this. So. Uh-oh. One thing I learned in the military was how not to volunteer for things. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. in the book, because yeah. we didn't talk about this so much, yeah. but there are all these industry organizations that have absolutely no incentive to want to do that. No. No, they're defending their turf. The Association of National Advertisers, are you kidding me? They are defending their turf. They have been telling the their constituents, who are the, the world's largest advertisers, they've been telling them for years that uh, tracking is great and that fraud is, is uh, not a really a big problem. And Look how that, measurable it is. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and now... They, they, they are up against their own lies. It's so obvious that they've been lying for so long. Even internally, they, they have had to, to, to do a cover-up of their own lies. Uh, that, that's in the book as well. Um, it's, uh, and it makes me want to go to a stockholders meeting yeah. and start asking yeah. questions about this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because you, you talk in several places in the book about big Big advertisers who are hemorrhaging uh, uh, untold uh, fortunes. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to to reading now yeah, that you have time? It, yeah, I don't know what I've what I recommended on your last um, last time I was on the show, but I would recommend a book called "Why the Peddlers Sing." Oh yeah, by, that's been yeah, mentioned before Paul on the show. Feldwick. Yeah, uh, he, he Paul has two good books. There's another one that he wrote that's also terrific. Uh, what else have I read recently? That's very. Oh yeah, read Everybody Lies, and I can't remember Seth Stevens Davidovich. I think uh, Everybody Lies, really good book. Is it about our industry? Bob? It's uh, it's about. Uh, human behavior. So in that Everybody sense, it's lies. not specifically <laughs> about our industry. It's not about account people, Douglas. Don't worry. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Easy. easy. <laughs> Everybody uh, lies. Big data, new data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. Yes. Very wow. interesting book. Yeah. yeah. Did I get the name right, Seth Stevens? Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Interesting. 
Good. Yeah. Wow. Well, great. Great recommendation. Okay. Yep. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable on this yep. episode's website page, including all the books that have been mentioned, all uh, Bob's past performances. And we'll even no, throw out a bonus because you were on uh, Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we just can't stop drinking together. No, your website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And uh, I do hope that uh, you, dear listener, will reach out to Bob in some way. You know, it's a it's a gruff exterior, but you know he's a he's a he's a cuddly guy, and he'll 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 actually respond to you. Please thank him for being on the show. I mean, because otherwise, you know, he 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 may say, you know, I don't want that marketing book podcast six timers club for the next book that comes out. And he goes, I got plenty of Taco Bell discounts. But congratulate him and thank him for being a guest on the podcast and putting up with my foolishness. And guests on the show really do. Every week I hear from past guests who tell me how much they enjoy hearing from listeners, you know, ask questions. Uh, but they, they do enjoy listening, uh, hearing from you, and not just because you're also ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. This was not meant to be a political book, but I guess that any major public-facing institution exists in a political context. Advertising's no exception. Historically, there have not been many things that liberals and conservatives could agree on, but one we all agreed on was the inalienable rights of an individual. This principle is now under attack. We are living in a world today in which authoritarian anti-democratic forces are ascendant on both the right and left. In the Eastern world, we have oppressive left-wing regimes in China and Russia. In the Western world, we came alarmingly close to a right-wing coup against the U.S. government. Governments are geniuses at inventing crises for which collecting personal information and inhibiting rights of citizens are necessary. We would be foolishly naive to believe that governmental agencies are not now and will not in the future tap into the massive repository of tracking-based information that the ad tech industry has collected about each of us. How they might use that information is anybody's guess, but if you guess they'll use it to reinforce democratic principles, I think you're guessing wrong. It might seem ridiculous to assert that an endeavor as silly and trivial as advertising could become an existential threat to democratic institutions, but I have no doubt that it has. We need to ban tracking. The book is Ad Scam, How Online Advertising Gave Birth to One of History's Greatest Frauds and Became a Threat to Democracy. The author is Bob Hoffman. Bob, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It's great to be here as always. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 